And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Metrospective presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. I'm Ted Berg, joined as always in Zoom conference by the Athletics Mets beat writer Tim Britton. And Tim... <sighs> yeah, that was, you know, I, I, I wrote the, the first line of my, my Mets... My this week in Mets on Monday morning was exhale, but it doesn't quite... That doesn't quite get across the emotion that... <sighs> Yeah. Seems to because that that was that was quite a kind of week, um, weekend for the Mets. Yeah, it's a uh, it's tempting to just maybe just instead of use words, just emote the entire podcast and just make a bunch of noises. Uh, that was a, a a wild weekend for the Mets. Uh, and if you are listening, you probably are familiar with what happened. The Mets had probably. Almost certainly, I think their worst loss of the season on Saturday, the bullpen completely falling apart against the Pirates, uh, losing yet another game to the Pirates. This guy uh, wearing number 69, Nogasek, is suddenly Babe Ruth against the Mets. Uh, and and then uh, the the like sort of immediate domino news that both Jacob deGrom and Francisco Lindor are now on the the injured list. DeGrom with a forearm issue that he said, um, and I would say like when you're reading between the lines, almost every player ever says, oh, I could go today if I needed to. And when DeGrom was asked that, he was like, "Uh, I don't know. Um, And he said it, you know, he felt it in his forearm every time he throws the ball. The no structural damage, according to the MRI, uh, should put many caveats that the Mets never seem to find structural damage in the initial MRI. Um, DeGrom says it doesn't feel like it's in his elbow, which is uh, a a big sigh of relief for Mets fans, but still not good that he's not throwing. And then Lindor, we saw leave a game after taking a swing and not even bothering to run to first, which is unlike him. He has an oblique issue. We know these things can linger. And then, uh, and and this might be, I might be breaking this news to you, Tim, uh, because it just came across my Instagram on Monday morning. Uh, but the, you know, yet another piece of big Mets news is that it appears Rob Gazelman now has cornrows. Ooh. That's I, I did not I was not on top of that. We can uh, maybe get back to that one and focus <laughs> on Degrom and Lindor. Uh, yeah, with, with you know, I guess we'll start with Degrom. Um, you know, this is he's had a lot of uh, minor issues throughout the year with his back and his side. Uh, and he's he said, the fifth, I believe. Yeah, he had said that that all the others kind of derived from swings, whereas this one was just kind of soft tossing, and it, it he started feeling it. The forearm, I would say, is probably the third worst body part for a pitcher to experience tightness in. Like, I think number one is the shoulder because shoulder injuries are are extremely difficult to come back from. Two is the elbow uh, because, like, elbow tightness 
uh, leads you to being where Joey Lucchese is currently uh, recovering from Tommy John surgery. Forearm tightness could lead in that direction. Uh, I, I know that that I don't want to be alarmist here, uh, but the good news is that the the Mets have already taken the MRI uh, and that they, they don't believe there's structural damage there. You know, like in in the instance of Lucchese, you know they they said he might be, he should be okay, but we're getting an MRI, and it was after the MRI that that it was much worse. So, uh, you know, there, there's no reason to think this is like uh, a season-ending kind of thing for Jacob Degrom, uh, but. Uh, you know, we, we don't know exactly at this point how long he's going to be out. It seems like this is the most serious of the minor issues that he's had to this point because uh, he's going to miss the most time from it. Uh, he could be back as soon as Sunday. That would be uh, a great thing for the Mets, but it might be a little bit longer than that. Uh, and that, you know, the uh, magnitude or severity of his injury and his absence probably helps uh, determine what kind of pitcher you want to go out at the trade deadline and, and get. You know, if it's a guy, you know, the... Tyler Anderson type from from Pittsburgh who kind of fills out your rotation and just eats some innings for you. Uh, if it's uh, you know the John Gray uh, type who you know maybe starts a playoff game for you, or if it's uh, Jose Barrios or something you know that we don't know is out there yet type who starts a game a couple games for you in a seven game series. Uh, those are kind of the, the the different strata that they could look at and how they feel about Degrom, how they feel about Carlos Carrasco uh, who made who we talked about last podcast. Uh, will probably determine how they how they set those different uh, levels of pitcher up in their mind. Yeah, right now uh, they you know really a rotation of Marcus Stroman, uh, Taiwan Walker, who I want to talk about because I didn't even mention Sunday's absurd game, which uh, ended in a in a Mets win. Um, Tyler McGill, who I think we we can feel pretty good about at this point, uh, and and Jared Eikhoff, who uh, will be starting, I believe, in Monday night's game back in the rotation, but more seems like probably. Uh, well, I mean, I can't say he's a he's a place filler because he's their fourth starter right now but uh like you said it does seem like it makes the the need in the rotation all that more pressing whether that means uh you know trying to coax Carrasco back maybe a a starter too sooner which we talked about at length last week but or going out and uh, acquiring someone on the in the meantime uh, on the flip side of things, uh, they they didn't just lose their their best pitcher; they also lost their their best position player. Um, I, it's it's hard to call Francisco Lindor like more replaceable than anyone, except that it, I'm comparing him to Jacob Degrom. Not an easy guy to replace, um, especially on the defensive side of things. Yeah, you know, uh, I think there there will probably be listeners who bristle when you call him the Mets best position player that's what he's been to this point in the season even though it's been a very disappointing offensive year for Lindor he's been uh, but the I, most valuable I, yeah. position player because I been- mean I'm speaking generally too like he's he is the best player on the team if people want to fight me on that like bring it at me on Twitter and I won't <laughs> respond he's the best player on the team like that's that that's that's what he hasn't he hasn't necessarily like he has actually by wins above replacement been the most valuable player on the team this year but uh, true talent level. I think it's. I feel pretty comfortable saying he's the best player on the team, position player. Uh, and, and so you know he's he's really been an anchor for them. I, th- I think it was eighty seven of the first eighty eight games he had started. The one he didn't was a was a nightcap of a doubleheader. So like until Saturday, the Mets had not played had a had a day this season where they played a game and Francisco Lindor did not. Uh, so. Uh, they're, they're going to miss him. The, it's a grade two oblique strain. You look at some other guys who had the grade two strain earlier this year, like Luke Voigt with the Yankees and George Springer with the Blue Jays. 
those guys took about a month but like you said obliques are really finicky they're really tough uh, i don't we didn't get a grade on on luis guillorme's uh strain i don't believe it was a grade three earlier this year i think we would have heard if it was a grade three uh, and he missed a month and a half uh with it so uh it's it's kind of i would say it's like a four to eight week thing uh depending on how it goes and like anytime you rush an oblique you get a setback that is a lengthy one it's not like uh oh he tried to come back but didn't feel quite comfortable so he's sitting for three or four more days then he gets back into it it's like no you sit for two more weeks so i think the the mets have to be cautious here lindor has to be cautious here uh, they have some guys to replace him uh, in Guillaume. Uh, you know, now that J.D. Davis is back, they can slide Jonathan VR over to short the way they did on Sunday. Jose Peraza mm-hmm. has played some short. VR and Peraza are not uh, ideal defensive options there. Uh, you know, they, they've both played it in the past. They've got, I think, you know, Peraza's played about 300 games there, VR about 400. They've been regular shortstops in their careers, but never one's known for their glove at that position. They're better at other infield positions. Uh, Guillaume is the guy who does have the glove to play short. He's probably a better defensive shortstop than he is at third base, uh, where he's struggled from time to time. But then, yeah, you know, I, the bat, you, you wonder what the bat will be. And certainly, he won't bring you the same offensive capabilities that probably VR does. It's a different kind of on-base skill that Guillaume has uh, in the in the short term. Uh, but the the on-base skill is obviously is valuable, and you know, it's to say with Guillaume, like for as long as it feels like he's been around, it's there. There haven't been a lot of like extended looks at at how he'll play offensively if he's if he's if the pitchers of around the league are seeing him every day. But he does uh, have the ability to draw a walk. To we, I mean, we've seen we, he will fight through even a 20-whatever pitch at bat in a spring training game, which uh, I knew we would talk about at some point later in the season. Uh, and so, like, I, I don't I don't hate the idea of, of Guillaume playing shortstop every day, but there's no, uh, you know, there's no putting a silver lining on, on losing Lindor, uh, except that it, with this Mets team, it feels like all year we've been saying, like, this guy's injured and this guy's injured, and yet now... Uh, Sunday comes around and and a team that seems like it should be uh, completely demoralized having just lost its best pitcher and, and best position player to sort of nebulous injuries that could linger into September for all we know. Uh, and then has the, like one of the most bonkers first innings I've ever seen uh, featuring Tywin Walker thinking a, a dribbler up the third baseline is foul, scooping it away to to keep it foul, but uh, it was actually fair. And, and I believe the ump made the right call. I think it was a fair ball, allowing three runs to score. The only thing I can think of that I've ever seen like this before, uh, and it was, it was a different sort of... of uh, I don't even want to say what Walker did was boneheaded. I think it was the smart play if he was just a, an inch closer to the ball. Um, but do you remember a game when David Cohn got so caught up arguing with the umpires while holding the ball that the that the uh, the runs just started the runners just started running around the bases? I, so I've seen the highlights of that one. The, the one that I remember more is uh, I believe it was the Chuck Knobloch game in the was that the 98 ALCS where uh he argued a call and, and let a, a runner score for Cleveland that that like made a big difference mm-hmm. uh the same kind of idea I mean this was what was remarkable was it like it was two extra runs that essentially yeah you they know, just kept coming score because of it um that you know everyone just kept coming around and I, I think watching it live uh 
my thought was like, why isn't anyone getting the ball? Yeah. Um, and Walker's explanation, like he thought he flipped it into the dugout, does make some sense. He flipped it in the direction of the dugout. It looked like it was headed that way. Uh, and it actually, like it benefited Pittsburgh that it stayed in play. Usually uh, you're thinking if, if the ball goes into the dugout, that's a bad break for the defense because it allows everyone to move up a base. This in this instance, it allowed, um, <laughs> since it was in play and the Mets didn't realize it, uh, that uh, it allowed more runners to go around. Uh, I do think it was the right call. It did look like it was just in contact with the chalk. Uh, but, you know, you look at that three-inning stretch that the Mets had from Saturday night to Sunday afternoon, where it's not like this, these were your your worst pitchers giving up big-time runs. It was Seth Lugo giving up five runs in the eighth inning. It was Edwin Diaz giving up the walk-off grand slam to Jacob Stallings in the ninth inning. And it was your all-star starter, Taiwan Walker, giving up six runs on four walks uh, in the first inning Sunday. Uh I'm trying to. I'm not a math major. I believe that's 15 runs in three innings from three of your your four or five best pitchers on staff. Uh, that was. Uh, <laughs> it's an easy time to get down on yourself, uh, and yet the the Mets noticing that the Pirates themselves had come back from six runs down in much shorter time span were able to be inspired by that and and f- forge their own comeback in the the final eight innings on Sunday. I should note that I, I misidentified the Pirates offensive hero of this series. It is not Nogasek. That is a different guy who uh, sort of bounced around the, the league. John Nagowski wearing number 69 and uh, seeming to get on ruffle the, ruffle the Mets feathers quite a bit in that series. Uh, Luis Rojas, after that play, uh, sort of uncharacteristically lost his mind, uh, got himself ejected. I imagine we'll probably catch him himself a, a suspension maybe a short one for making contact with an umpire uh but i don't know if i'm and i i can't i can't count how many times i've i've uh tried to put an optimistic spin on on strange moments in the met seasons but can we say can i hope that like that's that's gonna be because we it felt like rock bottom came when every guy in the lineup was out but maybe rock bottom is uh, Jacob DeGrom and Francisco Lindor are now out, and Taiwan Walker just flipped a ball to nowhere and allowed three runs to score in a six-run inning. Uh, and then, you know, from that moment on, maybe now now the Mets season will just be like smooth sailing. Uh, first of all, never say anything is rock bottom. That, that's just asking it yeah. to get worse. <laughs> right, uh, that's that's asking. I, and my, I'm, I'm sure we've discussed it before, but my, I never never will think about rock bottom without thinking about John Neese collapsing on the mound in, in 2009. That was <laughs> That is, like, for me, like, rock bottom for Mets franchise history. Um, just being at yeah. that game. Um, uh, yeah, I was watching it on the TV above my desk at SNY, and I was like, oh, at least there's this guy, John Neese, we can still root for. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, so it could, it could always be worse, but it was pretty bad there, uh, Saturday night and, and in the beginning of that game on Sunday. And now, uh, thanks to a comeback that featured a home run from Michael Conforto, which makes me feel good. Uh, three hits from Dominic Smith, which makes me feel very good. Uh, and a big contribution from, from our man Blankenhorn. Uh, I feel a little bit better. I like how you just called him Blankenhorn because he's the player like I I can't remember the last time this has happened to me as a reporter where I consistently blank on his first name it's Uh, I was Travis it's Travis I was gonna say my instinct was Trevor and then I realized I was like I don't think it's Trevor I think it's yeah is it is it Taylor no it's it's Travis 
Uh, I, I, I sometimes think Trevor, uh, I think there was one point in the season where in a rough draft of a story, I called him like Seth Blankenhorn. I'm like, that's not even close. That's, that's, <laughs> that's on not? me. Um, I thought like the Rojas, I mean, clearly like, you know, for two years now, uh, we've talked about like how even keel he is. Uh, and that was, you know, he's gotten ejected before. Uh, and I think, you know, we've learned uh, that, that this is a guy who gets on home plate umpires in particular over the course of a nine inning game from the dugout. Uh, but that was by mm-hmm. far the angriest uh, we've seen him. I, I would venture uh, that that is the angriest he has been on a major league baseball field as a manager uh, on, on a professional baseball field as a manager, even going back to his time in the minor leagues. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think there was some thought in the moment that maybe this was like his way of uh, like a choreographed way of, of pumping the team up. Uh, but I think from his comments after the game where he was saying things like, you know, was the, genuine. The, the guys were telling me I did some things that I don't remember doing, uh, which is just, you know, your typical Sunday morning in college, uh, that, uh, that that was just genuine emotion uh, and genuine anger from him. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's probably better than it being choreographed. Like, guy, I think guys see through the choreographed nature of it sometimes. Uh, and, and yeah, I feel like that was like a Bobby Valentine used to do stuff like that, right? Like, you know, or like or say controversial things to get heat off the team. But I think that like today's player and fan are probably so savvy about uh, like just public relations in general that no one's going to buy it if Luis Rojas fakes mad. He was that was real mad. He was real mad. Yeah, I don't I don't think you uh, you risk suspension for fake mad. Uh, and he, was, he wasn't going back into the dugout after, hand, you know, like Gene Hackman in Hoosiers handing the whatever to to uh dennis hopper to, to dave joust there and being like okay you lead him home dave um so uh, i think that was that was that was legitimate and and you'll see you know uh, momentum is only as good as your your next day's starting pitcher and and the mets are starting jared eikoff on monday they don't have a their uh, tuesday is another tba day uh i guess robert stock would make sense he only pitched an inning for syracuse the other day uh if they wanted to bring carrasco back uh they could he the would be four days since his outing in Brooklyn. Uh, so it would be on regular rest. Uh, we discussed that in depth last time why I'm, I'm not a fan of that idea uh, and still am not. And, and even Louis Rojas said uh, the other day that the DeGrom injury should not impact how they feel about Carrasco's timing. You don't rush a guy back just because of that right. uh, in the moment. So uh, we'll, we'll see how it plays. You know, Cincinnati them, itself had a really good series going into the All-Star break. They took three or four from Milwaukee. They got within four in the division that, that they could think about buying and that they're right there. Uh, and then they got swept at home by the Brewers with a lot of their bullpen issues re- resurfacing. And then, they, you know, they had just gotten Michael Lorenzen back and then he goes back on the IL. Uh, so things didn't work out uh, for them as, as much as they wanted that first weekend. So th- they're a desperate team. The Mets uh, are not quite desperate, but they're getting <laughs> they're they're trending toward desperation a little bit. Uh, and the Phillies have tightened things up in the NL East. They, they had a nice weekend against Miami, and uh, they're only two back. I think it's as close as they've been in, in a few months. Uh, so it's uh, it's getting to be uh, even more interesting in the National League East uh, in the, the third week of July. And interestingly enough, as we speak Monday in the early afternoon on Monday, the Mets have put Jacob deGrom on the IL, but they did not make a corresponding move yet. So it seems like they will play uh, one player shorthanded on Monday night. Is is there something to that that I'm missing? Is it, is it a matter of like... Are they are they weighing the Carrasco thing? Are they trying to? Is there a like a ten day delay on someone who's been sent down? Uh, why are they not replacing Degrom? Yeah, so I, I think the it's not the ten day thing. If you put a guy in the IL, you can call up anyone. 
Um, I think part of it was uh, they wanted, you know, you can only backdate a guy three days, no matter how long ago it's been since he's been, you know, the Mets, DeGrom, it, you know, by the time they put him on the IL on Sunday, uh, it had been 11 days since he had pitched. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't backdate it all the way to, to the July 8th, you know, the, the first day after he pitched. You can only do it three days. So they wanted to get him on the IL as soon as they could so he could return as soon as possible. He could return as soon as Sunday if they needed him to. Uh, so that's you could read that as good news for his injury uh, prognosis that they do think it's possible he could be that that day could make a difference. Uh, I do not believe they had a taxi squad of players in Pittsburgh uh, ready to be called up. I don't think they had like uh, a pitcher or two there to to bring in. Uh, and I think we'll find you know they just haven't announced the move uh, on Monday. I'm guessing it would be for another pitcher. You can get you know they played short on Sunday. They only had 25 out of the 26 players. It's a little easier to do that when the guy you put on the IL is a starter uh, that, Mm -hmm. you know, you're you're still operating with a five-man bench, still operating with uh, an eight-man bullpen. Uh, It's not too dissimilar from a normal game. You you could have given yourself a little bit more advantage, and certainly when your starting pitcher only goes an out uh, or doesn't get out of the first inning, uh, that it could have been useful to have uh, a, a another long man up there. I don't, I don't know who it would have been Nick Tropiano or something, uh, but I, I assume we'll see that, that kind of person there uh, on Monday in Cincinnati uh, to help them out. And then they can make another move on top of that, probably for a starter on Tuesday. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they, because of their reliever usage over the weekend uh, and with who they have starting these next couple games, uh, they, they maybe even go with a uh, shorten the bench to four and bring in even more pitchers, Although there's, there's just not a lot healthy on the 40-man roster at the moment. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Well, you mentioned the reliever usage over the weekend, and I I don't think we should go to the podcast without mentioning uh, our unsung hero becoming suddenly a a very sung hero. Uh, Aaron Loop with just like a a really, really stellar two innings. Not a guy you you really expect to give you two innings. And then what I love about it is that after the game, uh, someone asked if he earned his his Bush Light. I I missed the backstory to Aaron Loop and Bush Light, but he just came out and said, like, I've already had a few, Uh, which just I I admire so much that someone could just have the the courage to just be like, yeah, I've been drinking. Like, yeah, it's like, you know, I've done with work i you know what, what do you want from me like i'm gonna do you want me to just sit and watch the ball game without drinking a beer like aaron loop is gonna drink a few beers here in them yeah i mean that like uh, so I, I think it was a, a zoom uh, earlier in the year maybe like a month ago when we talked to, to aaron uh, and he had the bush light like on you know very visible uh on the camera and i it, i don't what, know if you're actually... a major league baseball player why are you drinking like you're a sophomore in high school <laughs> i don't i don't know whether he intended it but it 
it had been set up like where you see the label in the front, like you know, in the NBA press conferences like, and yeah, college basketball, like the like, Gatorade, they set it up yeah. very specifically. Like no one ever drinks what's there; it's just there to, for show. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was a whole thing with uh, with with uh, soccer guys because Chris Chris uh, Cristiano Ronaldo that's his name the the yeah. super beautiful man yeah <laughs> he he took his he took a drink off it was a I think it was a Coke uh, and he he took it off the table because he didn't want to promote that and then like stocks crashed and stuff I don't think that's <laughs> gonna happen with Aaron Loop but maybe uh, maybe Anheuser Busch skyrocketing right now thanks to Aaron Loop's endorsement. And, and this is, so this is a guy uh, when we asked him about being an opener uh, in spring training, like whether you know whether that idea appealed to him, and he was like, "Oh yeah, like that sounds great. Like get in, do my work, go back to the clubhouse, have a couple brews, watch the rest of the game." Yeah. Uh, and he, you know, he actually did open uh, just just before the All Star break and said he had been pushing for it. It seemed like that like that whole concept was very appealing to him. Uh, and, you know, I mean, how could that not be appealing to you if you throw, if you like, if you're, you know, you're going to only throw like one inning in a game, right? Like, why not make it the first inning and get it over with and, and then get to watch a baseball game? Yeah, I, I mean, this is, uh, it's it's like when I go to the, the West Coast or something, when I wrote for a newspaper and like your, you know, your West Coast deadlines are like an hour and a half before the game starts. You have to have everything in by. Uh, and so right. like once the game starts, like, well, I don't have to write, a, you know, I don't have to do anything until the game story now. So I can spend like three or four innings just sitting out in left field in Seattle or Anaheim or something and enjoy a game from a different angle for once. Uh, not not drinking Bush Light uh, at that point. Uh, but so, okay. yeah, it was it was I think it sounded like yeah, I'm, I'm recreating and projecting a little bit here. You know, Conforto was in the Zoom room or whatever they, they want to call it. Uh, and he started chuckling right at the end of his. Uh, so I and Loop came in right after him uh, and put the bush light down in front of the camera again. So I assume that Loop was was uh, the cause of, of Conforto's uh, chuckles there. Uh, and it was it was Steve Gelbs who asked if he had earned the bush light. And, and uh, uh, yeah, I am not by like and this is rare, for, I think, for someone who has been a, a professional baseball blogger. But like, I am just not a craft beer guy at all. It's just does not my thing. Uh, but like, but. Bush Light, you're you're a major league baseball player, and you're I don't know I like I again I find it kind of admirable because I, I just as I find it funny every time I go into some like Brooklyn uh, craft beer bar and ask for a, a high life, uh, I find it very funny that that this guy uh, making more than half a million dollars a year is 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 drinking Bush Lights. I I I. You know, I this guy's got a thing. He's he is, um, you know, uh, whatever different Instagram slogan you want to live. He's living his best life, or he's uh, following his truth. But uh, whatever it is, as long as he's got an ERA under one point five, I, I respect the hell out of it. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the wins above. I, th- I think he has surpassed Edwin Diaz as the Mets' most valuable reliever, according to to wins above replacement on Fangraphs. Uh, and look, there's a time uh, I wouldn't say bush light. I, I think everyone has like their their go to. I'm not going to say bad beer, but like lighter beer, like the easy drinking college beer, um, mm-hmm. you know, and when I had a, a group of friends and it was like Bud Light, that was what you had uh, if you didn't want, you know, if you didn't want the heavy, good, you know, 7% and above ABV beer. Um and for Loop, you know, it's it's Bush, and you know, more power to him. Like I, I like that he hasn't changed. Uh, I think I think this is probably what he he drank he drank with his friends uh, growing up or in college, uh, and he just stuck with it. Good for him. 
Yeah, I, it's like it's like if you I don't know. It's it's just funny because like it's it's not even the fanciest cheap beer in the Anheuser Busch, right? Like why not splurge for a Bud Light, right? But but I, again, uh, you know, like you you might as well just get yourself some Natty Lights and and call it a day. Uh, but but in in any case, uh, it is uh, especially now. Very much appreciated, and in his case, I think very much deserved. Yeah, and uh, you know the the bullpen as a whole after the nightmare that was Saturday for them, where you know, like I said earlier, like you know, you, if you had said the, the Mets were going to blow a six nothing lead in the last two innings to the Pirates, your thought would have been, okay, like who started that eighth inning? Who got the ball rolling? Uh, you know, like when they blew that game to the Nationals back in 2019, I think it was Paul Seawald who had come into the game uh, and just didn't have it. Uh, and things kind of spiraled on him. And then, it, you know, things spiral quickly and it's tough to, to rebound from that. But it was Lugo from the start. Like, it wasn't like they had brought in uh, whatever long man who hadn't thrown in, in 10 days. It was Lugo who, who, again, hadn't thrown in a while. But uh, him and Diaz who gave it up. It was your two. It was your go-to guys uh, in the bullpen who, who gave it up. And so for them to come back on Sunday and give uh, the eight-plus innings, you know, Drew Smith was really good uh, to kind of get them back into the game, give them a chance to get back into the game. Or early on, uh, and then you've got Loop, Familia, both given two two scoreless innings, and Trevor May locking it down in the ninth because, uh, according to Rojas, both Diaz and Lugo were unavailable. Uh, that was that was a really good performance for a bullpen that that uh, was coming off maybe its worst night of the year. Drew Smith has been, at least by the results, he's been really good, just uh, suppressing hits really well. He has allowed a, a few home runs. He's uh, been a little bit wild, but the ERA is good. Uh, do you think that, that Smith has pitched his way into bigger spots at this point? There, I think there is a little bit of flux in the Mets bullpen hierarchy uh, at the moment. Like you, You've got... You know, Diaz, May, Lugo, and and Loop, I think, has probably pitched himself into more spots where it's not just, you're not just worrying about him against a lefty. I think you can see him get some seventh innings uh, that, that had been going to, like, Miguel Castro earlier in the season. Mm-hmm. I think th- th- those are probably your four mainstays in the back end. Uh, and we'll see if, you know, Diaz, I wrote about the other night, that, you know, really over the last month, the, the, the spin rate is down since the, the June yeah. 21st crackdown. The fastball command has, has left him, uh, and the results are, are also uh, not good since then. I think it's nine earned runs in nine and two-thirds innings uh, with, with the big home run the other night. Um, so Doesn't, maybe, mean you know, Doesn't mean right. he can't adjust. Doesn't mean he can't adjust, but and, you, you well, had to expect. You, every, every fan in baseball has to expect there are going to be guys on their team who have this issue now. Right, yeah, because it's it's like half the league. He he's the one guy on the Mets where the the spin is down, the command, like the the percentage of his fastballs that are within the strike zone, which is an important thing for him, uh, is down, and the results are down. Uh, you know, Drew Smith's spin is down also. Uh, his number of fastballs in the zone is down also, but his results are actually better than they've been at any point in the season. Uh, so, uh, you know, that that's worked out for him okay to this point. I think after the, those four guys in the back end, you've probably got like. Smith, Castro, and Familia are kind of your your middle relievers. Uh, they're a little bit more fungible, 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 fungible. I think fungible. I think I don't know. I don't don't go don't go me. They're, go uh, th- that area is more lunchable now. Uh, than, yeah, um, than it had been. You know, with, with kind of Castro used to be in the back end. I think he's more middle reliever since Lugo has come back. Uh, Familia has been in that role most of the season, uh, and I know I think you've got Smith. You know. He's still probably the guy who's lowest on the totem pole out of those guys because of his level of experience, but he is the one who, in the moment, I think is probably pitching the best. 
I messed around with some spider tech uh, playing baseball on Saturday. That is no joke. That substance that 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 is definitely cheating. If you're using that, I, I like it. It is not a natural seeming thing. Like it is. It is like putting some sort of permanent rubber cement on your fingers. I was using it to catch. I mean, I didn't use it to catch. I just used it because my friend brought spider tack and I was like, this will be hilarious. I'll dip my fingers in. I, I really didn't put that much on there, um, but apparently I put way too much on there and the ball was still very much like sticking to my fingers on return throws by like the third inning. Yeah, like uh, Alex Spear at the Boston Globe wrote a, a really good breakdown of it with uh, Lenny DiNardo and Manny Del Carmen, some Red Sox guys uh, nice. from, from the, the 2000s decade uh, where they were throwing with it and like, they could not get over how sticky that was and just, you know, and you, you've heard stories like of pieces of the ball stick to your fingers after you throw it uh, and that it takes like a very long time to wash that. Uh, how long was that on your feet? Is it still on your fingers now? Uh, like it's, like it's at what not, point did you feel comfortable with it? Um, it was, it was like a hundred degrees and I was catching and I'm a, I'm by nature a, a very, very sweaty human being. Um, and so, so it was, it was mostly by like the middle of the game. Uh, it was, it was mostly gone, but, uh, it was, it was like, it is a weird, I almost recommend everybody like buy a little, if you're, if you're on the fence about like how you feel about like, should baseball players be allowed to use this stuff? I don't think anyone thinks spider tack is okay. I think it's like the pine tar sunscreen. That's like sort of more on the, on the fence there. But if you think spider tack is like, oh, this is like just a, something pitchers are using to get a slightly better grip. Buy yourself a thing of spider tech. They're like $19 on Amazon and touch it one time. And you're like, oh, no, no, this is not normal. Like whatever this is, this is not supposed to be applied to uh, to a baseball or really. I know it is for human skin, but it's not. It doesn't feel like it should be for human skin. Yeah, I don't want any part of that. I have enough trouble with like crazy glue and, and gorilla glue when I have to use those things because I always get it on my fingers. And yeah, it's just there for days. Uh, yeah, it would, it, it, um, like now, and now I'm like, maybe I'm paranoid about it, but I'm feeling the tips of my fingers and it's like, maybe it's still, maybe it is still there from Saturday. I don't know. Uh, we got a question that's not really about the Mets wild weekend. Uh, do you want to hear it? Sure. Yeah. Uh, this is from Matt, uh, Matthew. Uh, no, Matt, it's his email says Matt, Matthew, but his, he signs it Matt. So we'll go with Matt. Uh, Matt wants to know, he says, uh, and I don't have the answers, and I, and I don't know if you do either. He's uh, so I'm putting you on the spot. Uh, he points out that that Rob Manfred discussed the possibility of banning the shift, uh, and said and sounded like it it might happen. Um, and so he wants to know uh, if they ban the shift, uh, will we see more bunting if fielders have to stay on the dirt? Uh, what happens when a middle infielder gets in position to cover second on a stolen base attempt, presumably straying over that imaginary line? Uh, and then this is my favorite one. This is my favorite one because I, I'm shocked when I think about it that we haven't seen this yet. Um, will we see a third baseman sprinting across the diamond during a pitcher's windup trying to time crossing second base with the ball being released from the pitcher's hand? <laughs> I, I did wonder, I mean, <laughs> I don't think it would be the third, I think... You would you might swap the third baseman and shortstop before the pitch, and then one jumps over. Uh, you know the the third baseman in from the shortstop's position just kind right. of goes over. Um, I, I don't know what I think they'd probably have to regulate something like that. I am, I but doesn't it feel much. weird that they haven't that 
baseball teams haven't thought to send defenders in motion. Like I would just feel like it would be so distracting for a hitter that it would be like it would definitely be ungentlemanly. But it feels like something some team like Joe Madden would pull out uh, one or two times before it becomes like a, a national crisis and someone gets drilled. Well, you do it like you have that a bit with the wheel play, right? On, yeah. On bunts and. I have a, one thing I've always appreciated about the wheel play is like the managers who love the wheel play are exactly the managers you would expect to love the wheel play. It's guys like Madden. It's guys like, but like Bobby Valentine, mm-hmm. uh, they're all about it. Um, yeah. I, we haven't seen defenders in motion. I, I think that would be, uh, I think teams would contemplate that if it's not like legislated out of the game, if the, the shift is banned. Um, I'm like weirdly ambivalent about the the banning of the shift. Oh, I, I know there's it. people who like who like really want the shift banned, and there's people who are like you can't ban creative defenses. And I see both sides of it because uh, the thing that I kind of compare it like like I think what you'd have to show me in order to ban the shift is like the game will be better um, and more balls will be put into play. And I don't mean home runs; I mean balls in the field of play. Uh, without a shift i don't know that there would be i don't think there's compelling evidence that there would be which is why i don't think we need to ban the shift uh i haven't looked at the batting average on balls in play against the shift this year versus other years i know in other years like the batting average on balls in play has not been greatly affected by the uh, proliferation of the shift uh so we're seeing you know just fewer balls in play i don't know that banning the shift changes that the uh, the counter argument that i can relate to uh, and I think I think it might have been Sandy Alderson who, who said this at, some, at one point uh, was just like the shift is not particularly entertaining. It's a creative strategy, yes, but when you would you know in other sports like teams come up with creative defensive strategies that are not entertaining and you legislate them out of the game. Uh, in the NBA, like fouling Shaquille O'Neal or DeAndre mm-hmm. Jordan, time after time after time at certain points in the game, like no one wants to watch that. Even if it's a good defensive strategy, you legislate it out. Uh, in the NHL, I don't know enough about uh, NHL rules and regulations, but like uh, the Jacques Lemaire uh, mid-ice trap, whatever you call it, uh, that the Devils used in the 90s that everyone hated uh, except us diehard Devils fans. Uh, as you could tell by me calling it the Jacques Lemaire mid-ice or whatever you call it trap. Right. Um, like I mean, they, you, you know, you've, you've lost me already. Like I, I go, I can, I can give you like the names of four guys on the 1989 <laughs> Islanders and that's about it for hockey. Uh, Pat LaFontaine. You know, what, they, they don't, <laughs> you don't, you don't see that anymore. At least I'm, I'm pretty sure that that, that was legislated out like 20 years ago. Um, and so hockey is a, a more open sport since then. Uh, so I can understand that argument. Uh, if you want to get rid of the shift, like this is not a particularly entertaining way to play defense. Uh, we want more balls in play to make the sport itself more entertaining, uh, even if the, the the shift is creative. But I don't. You need to show me evidence that that's actually going to do anything, because uh, I don't know that it, it will. I think it might just lead to more guys swinging for the fences again. Yeah, I just don't think that's that, and that's where I'm at. I, like, I just don't think it would change anything. I kind of want, and I think that the the problem that baseball keeps trying to solve is is that pitchers are too good basically. Right. And that, that everyone is now, uh, whether they admit it or not, a, a guess hitter, um, because you can't, you can't like just wait and see what Jacob deGrom has thrown you, right. You have to guess, uh, as soon as he throws the ball, like, is, is this a fastball or is this a slider? Um, and so you take your biggest, dumbest swing at, at whichever one you think it is. And maybe against Jacob deGrom, you probably don't hit a home run, but against a, a lesser pitcher, maybe you guess right. And you hit a home run, uh, and against, a uh, uh, 
maybe you guess wrong and and you you wind up striking out. Like I, to me, the proliferation of of home runs and strikeouts are are related to to that. It's that that um, you know pitchers in recent seasons have simply been throwing too hard. Their breaking pitchers have simply been moving too much for guys to adjust to them. It, it has become a, a league, I think, of essentially like guys who are anticipating, guys who are looking for a one pitch in one zone um, and trying to hit it out of the park. And uh, and it makes sense because you know your hits are going to be few and far between because of how good the pitchers are. So you might as well make them, uh, you know, do your best to make them home runs. Um, to me, the way to fix all of that, I mean, and we'll see. I'm I'm interested in seeing the long-term effects of the, the ban on sticky substances. Um, I actually think just moving the mound back is a better strategy because I think uh, it would defeat the purpose to some extent of of the shift if guys could slap it. Like if, if you had the option of seeing like, okay, like I'm a, I'm a lefty hitter and they're shifting me hard and he just threw me a slider and I can see it's a slider and, and I'm not going to try to turn on it. I'm just going to dink it the other way and, and turn it into a, a hit. Uh, maybe against a shift, I'm going to turn it into a double. Um, and then I think seams will stop shifting. And I think that like, I would rather just let that problem play out on its own. Um, because I just think, I think the thing that they need to figure out is, uh, how to make pitchers less dominant. Like, I, I just think that's, that's the underlying issue here. Yeah. And I, I liked, uh, I don't know if it's too late in the podcast to throw this out, but, uh, I like baseball prospectus a, f- a few months ago. Uh, let me find the, the story. I, I just brought it up. Uh, it was Craig Goldstein and, and Patrick Dubuque in May, uh, had wrote about what they called like a restrictor plate for pitching, you know, like in the same sense of restrictor plate racing and in auto racing, which is uh, another sport I don't really follow. And I don't really know what that means. I believe it, it prevents the speeds from going too high. Um, that basically if you limited the number of pitchers on a pitching staff and, and he's not, they're not talking about like 13 or 14, they're talking about 12 essentially, uh, that then guys could not throw their hardest on every pitch every time. Uh, and that, like, that's the thing with, with removing some of the foreign substances, you know, guys say, well, you know, I, I need to be able to control the ball. It's like, you get control maybe by not throwing your absolute hardest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what some things like spider tack and, and even the, the pine tar and, and, and things of those ilk allow pitchers to do is throw their absolute hardest with some command. Uh, and, uh, without, you know, we've seen guys be a little bit more wild since then. Uh, but. Uh, if you're going to be able, if you're going to throw your fastball for a strike and you can't do it without one of those, then you're going to have to throw it a little, you can't throw it at hundred percent effort every time. Uh, and maybe, uh, a combination of those things would help, uh, that not every pitcher out of the bullpen is throwing 98. Maybe a few of them are only throwing 95 or 96. Yeah. I think also probably in, in my head, at least because I want it badly, I think a pitch clock probably t- does some of that work too, just because it makes it into more of a, uh, a middle distance race for a pitcher rather than like a, a series of, of whatever it is, 95 sprints. Like, you know, you, you get a time to completely reset yourself and, and, uh, I saw someone refer to it. I think Craig Council, I, I think I mentioned it before, referred to it as the pitch execution era. Um, and it feels like that still like that, that there's like, you have time to like really just like sit down and think about how you're going to throw your next slider and, and visualize it and everything else. And, and uh, I happened to go to a minor league game a couple of weeks ago and like, I can now I am I was I was already on board for the pitch clock before they even put it in the minor leagues like having watched a game with a pitch clock in person I think for the first time uh I am fully still on board you just completely don't notice it except that you're like hey why is this game moving along at such a brisk pace right you're like why is it the fourth inning and we're it's still in the seven o'clock hour how did that happen 
Um, it's amazing. Uh, it, sh it should be the case. Uh, thank you to Matt for, for the question. If you have a question, you can email us at, at you can email me at asktedberg at gmail.com. Uh, you can hit up either of us on Twitter. Tim is at Tim Britton. I am at OG Ted Berg. We will be back later in the week to discuss all of the Mets many wins between now and then. Is Am I right on that one? Uh, well, I will not be back later in the week. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Actually, we won't be back later in the week. Um, this is good prep work by me. We, we will have a special episode later this week. Uh, we, the collective we, will not be back. Tim will be out of town. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if you, if you followed the podcast long enough, the pre-TED the pre era, you might remember last year that uh, I... I Non-canonical. <laughs> I, I spent... Uh, I, I missed a couple episodes uh, because I, I got married. Uh, and, uh, you know, as as is the case now, sometimes uh, the gap, you know, I, I never liked it when the gap between the ceremony and the reception was long on, a, on an afternoon. You know, like <laughs> the ceremony's at noon and the reception's at five. I never liked that. Uh, so what my, are you going to do? My wife, you got to sit around in a suit for four hours. Yeah. <laughs> my wife and I decided to really take that to an extreme uh, and make the gap 327 days between the ceremony uh, and the reception. So uh, we are we are finally having our wedding reception uh, at the end of the week uh, and we're looking forward to it. It should it should be a blast uh, as long as uh, the weather holds up because it is outdoors. And so is this something is it appropriate to congratulate you when you've already been married for nearly a year? It is always appropriate to congratulate me, Ted. I will never turn down kudos. <laughs> well, congratulations, Tim, and peace out. Adios. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.